I have uh, written a poem for a woman who rides a bus in New York City. She's a maid. She has two shopping bags. When the bus stops abruptly, she laughs. If the bus stops slowly, she laughs. If the bus picks up someone, she laughs. If the bus misses someone, she <laughs> So I watched her for about nine months. I thought, mm, uh-huh. Now, if you don't know black features, you may think she's laughing. But she wasn't laughing. She was simply extending her lips and making a sound. <laughs> I said, oh, I see. That's that survival apparatus. Now, let me write about that to honor this woman who helps us to survive. By her very survival, Miss Rosie, through your destruction, I stand up. So I used the poem with Mr. Paul Lawrence Dunbar's poem, Masks, and my own poem for old black men. Mr. Dunbar wrote Masks in 1892. We wear the mask that grins and lies. It shades our cheeks and hides our eyes. This debt we pay to human guile. With torn and bleeding hearts, we smile and mouth with myriad subtleties. Why should the world be overwise in counting all our tears and sighs? Nay, let them only see us while we wear the mask. We smile, but oh my God, our tears to thee from tortured souls arise, and we sing. Hey, baby, we sing, hey, but oh, the clay is vile beneath our feet and long the mile, but let the world think otherwise. We wear the mask. When I think about myself, <laughs> I almost laugh myself to death. My life has been one great big joke, a dance that's walked, a song was spoke. I laugh so hard, <laughs> I almost choke when I think about myself. 70 years in these folks' world, the child I works for calls me girl. I say, <laughs> yes, ma'am, for working's sake. I'm too proud to bend and too poor to break. So <laughs> I laugh until my stomach ache when I think about myself. My folks can make me split my side. I laugh so hard, <laughs> I nearly died. The tales they tell sound just like lying. They grow the fruit but eat the rind. <laughs> I laugh <laughs> until I start to cry when I think about myself and my folks, and the little children. My fathers sit on benches, their flesh count every plank. The slats leave dents of darkness deep in their withered flank, and they nod like broken candles, all waxed and burnt profound. They say, but sugar, it was our submission that made your world go round. There in those pleated faces, I see the auction block, the chains and slavery's coffles, the whip and lash and stock. My father speak in voices that shred my fact and sound. 
They say, but sugar, it was our submission, and that made your world go round. They laughed to shield their crying. They shuffled through their dreams. They stepped and fetched a country and wrote the blues in screams. I understand their meaning. It could and did derive from living on the ledge of death. They kept my race alive by wearing the mask. <laughs> so thanks for coming back um, and listening to UN5O. Uh, you just got through listening to uh, We Wear the Mask by Maya Angelou. And the reason that I wanted to start out with, you know, this conversation, and we may actually bleed over to the next podcast, is um, it kind of talks about, <clears throat> the reason I wanted to talk about that is the mask that, you know, black folks use. And then also we're going to be talking a little bit about, uh, we just lost two icons, uh, Mr. C.T. Vivian and Mr. John Lewis. And just kind of how, it's been a sad moment. There's it's a lot going on and, and to be in the middle of this movement to lose these icons. And, and we, we want to address that and see how that makes us feel. Um, kind of want to talk a little bit about whether or not my co-hosts feel like because uh, because of their age, if they, I was raised in the 60s, I was born in the, in the civil rights movement, but I wasn't a part of it. My family was a you know, was aware of it, obviously, but I was too young to kind of know what was going on. But just to kind of get a feeling from them, if they feel like uh, this needs to, because we're losing these icons, do we still need a leader or leaders during this moment? So what I want to do is just, I think you know them well enough. Um, so what I'm going to do is just go right into, you know, everything that's going on, losing these two icons and let them talk about this moment that we're in and whether or not they believe that we still need a John Lewis or Martin Luther King or C.T. Vivian. Um, and I'll start with uh, Andrew this time. Say hey. <laughs> hey, I'm Andrew, student at UNCG, still trying to stay alive. Um, and in reference to the poem, um, I had heard the poem a little bit before this and then hearing it again now, it's more relevant now to me than it was before. Um, but I can go into the poem a little bit later, but in reference to the two leaders that we just lost. I was shocked when I got the information on Friday. I was back home and it kind of, I guess it brought me down a little bit because I had been learning on my own about them. I'm just in college and in school, um, taking certain classes and stuff. So that brought me down as well too. Um, but the poem kind of made me think a lot about um, how black people and African-Americans have, having to put that mask on today um, just to prevent ourselves from from allowing the weight of the world to to weigh down upon us, and and I feel like maybe it's the commodity between like a black person and another black person, but sometimes I can see through that mask, or people can see through mask. I know my friends can, and but I read an article about young professionals going to work and how the mask you have to put this mask on every day because you can't allow, allow your white counterparts to know that you're weighing down, like your heart is really heavy going to work every day because you have to carry the weight of so many individuals and so much pain that you've been able to witness on through the media and on the news. Yeah. It's just hard. It's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. We'll definitely talk about that some more. Harmony. Welcome. Thank you. Hey y'all. Um, I definitely think that things seem a little bit more uncertain 
with everything that's going on in the world between coronavirus, our current administration, um, people like having to deal with the thought of foreclosure or not being able to send their kids to school. I mean, just, just overall, I'm feeling very weary, um, very uncertain, very nervous for the future. And I definitely think that losing two people that were really instrumental in birthing and continuing the civil rights movement has have now passed. It just, I don't know. It's very unsettling for me. Yeah. I, I, I'm with you, Harmony, on that. I, I, it's just been, I, I was surprised that I was feeling the way that I was. Um, mm-hmm. With everything going on, because I've been reading a lot, and I, and I can't think of the young professor. His, his last name is, is it Kendall Ibram, the, the African uh, professor that's writing a lot of books? What is his, I can't think of, I apologize for nothing, but I'm reading uh, Stamp from the Beginning. And and I'm just having to take a breath. And it's just everything that's going on and then the loss of the two icons. Um, so, you know. I just looked it up, BJ. It's Kendi, Ibrahim Kendi. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Yeah. So I'm reading this, that, the book, one of the books. He's got several out. And just, you know, it's, it's, like you said, it's a lot. So, what, so like, what we want to talk about is, is the, uh, this moment and then, how we perceive the moment based on I'm a boomer and how I was raised and, you know, and what, what that looked like for me and how that impacts how I view this moment. And then Harmony from the millennial, how she was raised, her personal journey values. And then, and then uh, Andrew being a Gen Z. But one of the things that I wanted to just a couple of quotes from uh, CT Vivian, um, talked about he was there both of them were nonviolent. you know that was part of the not that was part of that civil rights that was important to them to make the changes and they did um so one of the things that i want to quote something he said in a uh, article that was done by miss taylor branch called american in the king years and mr ct violet said nonviolence is the only honorable way of dealing with social change because if we are wrong, nobody gets hurt but us. And I just thought that was noble that they were willing to say, look, we're, we're going to take the beating as Mr. John Lewis took the crack in his skull and the rest. And he said, if we are right, more people will participate in determining their own destinies than before. And I think that's just huge. And then John Lewis, you know, he's, his thing is our struggle is not the struggle of a day, a week, a month or a year. It's the struggle of a lifetime, which he actually proved. I mean, he was constantly, constantly doing this work and, and setting the example and, and was, you know, very up until the last few days, just very proud of this Black Lives Movement moment. Um, so, you know, so how do you, I think, um, for me, how do we think that the mask, I think Andrew's kind of hit on it, has, how has it been passed down uh, through generations? And so, for me, I'll start with me, and the reason I really kind of want that, and like Andrew, hearing it again, when I, every time I hear it, I, I just like, it is so true. And and what you just said, Harmony, I think it was you, Harmony, it's just, oh, Andrew, I apologize. It's just going, even going to work. We're constantly wearing masks as black people. We're constantly, we got a lot of stuff going on. And we got to put this on and get through this day. But also, 
part of that mask is what she was talk talks about stepping and fetching. You know, just get through the day. She's got a grin because she's got to say yes, ma'am, to a five-year-old who she's working for. And but also growing up in this, for me, uh, I was raised with a slave mentality. That's powerful. And when I say, and that's not being derogatory to my parents, it's that's back then it was keep your eyes down. Don't look at a white woman. If you see a white man cross the street, because if you mm-hmm. don't, your house might get burned, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, so why wouldn't that come into the household when they raise their children? Uh, so my father would always say to me, keep your head down, keep your mouth shut and let your work speak for itself. And that's what I did. And he would always say, I don't trust a white man any further than I can throw them. But yet when a white man came into our yard, he was just as friendly as he could be. I would never know that he did, you know, he didn't trust him, but he treated him decent. But they, so for me, when I say that, it's like their concern was, let's, I got to take care of my family. And if I have to be submissive or I have to, as my mother would say, you know, the teaching kids as to why we have to cross the street when we see white people, because it's important that I need my children to grow up and I need my children to navigate this system and this space. And so for me, it's like, how does that impact what I do now in this moment? I'm I'm at a point now in my life, I'm not really in the mood to be so submissive, but I get why my upbringing was like that, because for them, they had to navigate that in order to protect us. That's what we needed to do. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So for me, as a boomer, my parents were speaking to me because my father was somewhat of a sharecropper and they worked on a farm that you know, his grandfather bought land from a white guy, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, you got to do what you got to do. And that's what that poem talks about, you know, talks about submission, you know, allows me to stand here and have this podcast because somebody submitted in my history instead of standing up and getting killed or hung or whatever. Somebody had to be submissive in order for my future to happen. So, I mean, so the, so how does that play out for, for you guys? You know, I mean, how does that play out for you? Generational. It may be different. I don't know. Um, you know, I think that it's, it was really powerful to hear you say that. And like you said, it's not, it's not to down your parents. Those are survival tactics. And that's what that theory of post-traumatic slave syndrome addresses. So I think it's, it's, it's a really powerful point of like self-reconciliation when you can verbally articulate that um, to other people so that you can experience what it means to be non-submissive as a victim of an oppressive system. Um, so I thought that that was really powerful. Um, you know, I think the important thing that I'm having to remind myself of often is that it's a marathon, not a sprint, all of this. So the fight for racial equity, trying to, you know, not get coronavirus, um, (laughs) trying to be hopeful about, you know, our political future, um, 
just all of it right now, I think is compounded and it feels extremely heavy. And like I said before, scary and uncertain. Um, And so I'm having to remind myself that I do want to show up for myself authentically. And that means not wearing that mask, even though it might be required, you know, like today, for instance, I'm having a really hard time showing up for myself today. Um, I'll be honest, I wasn't really in the mood to do this podcast, but I made this commitment. So I told myself showing up for this commitment is showing up for yourself. And so here I am, you know, and so it's, for me, it's this question of, or, or I guess this point of how, how do we balance one understanding the necessity of understanding the realness of the world? Like your parents were helping you do at a very young age to keep you safe. And also, being authentic and being true to ourselves and our feelings and our experiences, speaking our truth, even if it's different from other people's truths. Um, And I don't think that the two can exist um, because it's too limited. You know what I mean? Like when you feel as though you have to move through the world in a certain way, even though to a certain extent we do as black people, it starts to really weigh on the way that you're able to express yourself. Like I know as a black woman, sometimes it's difficult for me to be outspoken and to share my opinion because then I'm perceived as the angry black woman. Or when I'm in a class, I don't want to raise my hand too many times because I'm the only black girl in the classroom. Or when I'm in, God forbid, you know, in some cases, when I've been in situations um, just with other white people that are not nice to me. You know what I mean? Like, how do I navigate that? If I react with violence, then I'm probably the one that's going to get in trouble. Like John Lewis was talking about. (laughs) And if I'm submissive, then they think that it's okay to treat me that way. So, you know, it's just, I think as black people, it's this constant journey of understanding how to show up authentically for yourself, but also, having the survival tactics to move throughout the world. And it's such an unfair plight and burden. And I think is the most heartbreaking part of the entire thing. I don't want my nephews to have to play differently in the front yard. A couple of weeks ago, they loved guns. So they had like their little water guns and they were, you know, we were running around the front yard and we mm-hmm. were play shooting each other. And then I saw some white people walk by and I'd already been kind of uncomfortable with the thought. One, I just personally don't like guns, but two, because we're black people playing in a predominantly white neighborhood with fake guns. And I had to tell them to put the guns down and they didn't understand it. And I, I don't think I was ready to even explain it to them. Or if they're too rowdy in public, especially in spaces where there's a lot of white people, I find that I correct them more because I don't want them to be perceived as Mm -hmm. a threat or unruly or, you know, untrained. Um, So yeah, if, if, (laughs) if I'm submissive, it kind of keeps me from, from really showing up like I want to show up for myself and from, I think being able to curate these experiences for my nephews, you know, and I can only imagine how difficult it must be for parents who have to, to navigate that all the time, not, not just parenthood, but teaching your, your children to, you know, be authentic, stand up for yourself, um, you know, fight against injustice, but also having to acknowledge the reality of what that could mean for them if, if they actually do those things. So, yeah, I've been really kind of struggling with that thought recently of how to show up 
for myself and for the people that I love in a way that's authentic and genuine and true while also trying to navigate the world. Um, and like Drew always says, try to stay alive. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to hear what you have to say, but just, that's just a lot. It's exhausting. It's, it's, you know, I know people get tired of hearing black people say this is exhausting, but it's exhausting. <laughs> Cause that's, I mean, that's, that's not, just something you do sometimes black people do that all day long i mean and and that Mm -hmm. you're not even talking about the fact that you got i think andrew hit on the fact that you got to act a certain way at work right (laughs) you know so you you basically stayed in the i just need to be authentic with with the people i love we're not even talking about general you know too too much about the fact then you lay on the top you got to figure out how to navigate stuff so good job so andrew what you got there's a lot of things coming through my head right now um, after that conversation. And there were already original thoughts when you first asked the question. So I'm kind of, I'm going to try to slow down, slow my brain down. Um, but something that came to my mind when you first asked the question was um, I was raised, or I'm being, I was raised, I'm being raised, I was raised. <laughs> We're all being raised, Andrew. Don't worry. We are all being raised. I know. Still being raised. You're right. You're right. Go ahead. Um, I was raised by um, a very loving mother and loving father. Um, my father was, was a little bit more stern than my mother was. Um, so I was not, I wouldn't say the hyper-masculine traits were kind of thrown in my face, but I watched my father show them to me. And he didn't necessarily impress them onto me, but I would watch, I've seen my father cry maybe three, two, three times in my 21 years of life. Um, So to never see him be emotional in that way, it kind of taught, like subconsciously make me think being submissive as a black male is incorrect. And if, Mm -hmm. if, if I am this way, then I may be perceived a certain way. Um, So subconsciously I kind of built in my own brain how I didn't need to, express these emotions publicly or express these emotions to anyone. Um, so when I got out on my own, I didn't know what to do with the emotions because I was always sheltered by my mom and all these other things. So me having to face that on my own was hard for me. Um, so I guess something else that I was thinking about was um, my mom was a teacher at my elementary school. So and I'm, I'm a small framed African-American male. So I've always been little and small. Um, but being submissive has, has sort of kind of been in my DNA, if that makes any sense, because I've always been, if you look at me, I don't look menacing. Um, I don't look, so, um, no one would be, you know, afraid of me by just looking at me. So being submissive is something that I've tried to contradict by being proud and being bold in what I say and thinking before I speak. Um, so it's kind of been a push for me a little bit, but then on the other side, it is, has made me scared to say a few things that I sh- I should shouldn't say or should say because I know I am perceived because perceived a certain way because of my skin tone. Um, but I think that was all. There was a lot of things going on in my mind to answer your question. But I think that's all. Um, and so, so in case those of you may be hearing us the first time, Andrew is my nephew, and, and his father is my my brother, um, and. He's actually, I mean, 
not to get too far into my family business, but my, my brother kind of learned that that's kind of how my parents raised my brother and I was not to show emotions. And so I mean, that, that's been a struggle for me personally, my relationship and stuff. So I see that, you know, that, 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 that comes from how my brother and I were raised. Um, so that's part of, I don't know whether that's part of the mask that my family and my parents, you know, chose for us to just not do that and, and saw that as a, as a weakness. I, I, I have no idea. Um, but, you know, to ask you guys this, so do you, you know, the, the new black quote is, you know, we're not our ancestors, you know, and, and what does that mean for you? Because, you know, clearly we're not our ancestors, but that history I don't know why that was so funny to me, but it really was funny. <laughs> okay, I'm glad to make you laugh. Uh, so we're not, but I guess at some point, we are going to be somebody's ancestor. Honestly, BJ, you could probably qualify as somebody's ancestor now. <laughs> I don't really know how to, thank you, is all I'm going to say to that. Uh, but so how do you feel about the fact that we're not, we're not, slaves and we don't we're not uh you know that fear of how we need to respond could result in and like the poem says living on the edge of death and in order you know in order to to make sure the future is promised to it or the, as she says our race is being saved because of them being submissive you know how does that play out you know we don't really fear that except obviously possibly at the hands of law enforcement how do you guys feel about that you know technically we're not we're not we don't really need to work like that that much anymore um so you so you were are you were i just want to make sure that i'm understanding the question okay. you were asking kind of like how we felt about the term we are not our ancestors right, right? as far yeah as far um, as, as far as having a, to you know how basically our ancestors or forefathers had to navigate, you know, like she says in a form, their submission basically allows us to do what we do today. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and do we yeah, feel like we, we need to be as submissive? Oh, oh, you know, okay, now, okay. You know, it is. It, it, I get your question. Were, yeah, the reason they were submissive was to save the race or make sure that BJ and Andrew and Harmony could be here today. You know, but do you have that same feeling that there's some sort of, as you, as we've talked about navigating what we right. have to navigate in order to make sure that the seed uh, is, is, is that we're, we're still pushing forward for the future. Yeah. So I don't personally like that term because I okay. think that it's, I think that a lot of people are using it as like, we are not our ancestors and we will fight you. First of all, a lot of our ancestors were physically resistant to white supremacy, first and foremost, and a lot of them died for it. And so, you know, again, it's a survival tactic, right? So I, I don't like that because I, I feel like our ancestors laid incredible groundwork for us to be able to stand upon and continue this mission. Now, I also, on the other hand, do understand nonviolent protest and specifically like millennials, Gen Zs. I don't want to say preference because I don't think it's a preference. I think the majority of protesters are very peaceful. I think the reason that people that participate in parts of this movement support violent, I don't even say violent, I will just say non-peaceful acts mm -hmm. like rioting, right? 
right? I don't consider rioting to be violent because it's not hurting another person. Mm -hmm. So non-peaceful. I think that the reason that, you know, people my age seem to maybe not gravitate, but are, or they at least are going to verbally say, I'm not condemning this, is because we've seen, you know, just how hard the people in our lives have fought. And I'm sure we've all heard these stories about, you know, people that came before us. So, you know, for you, BJ, it was probably your grandparents that were slaves. Um, And so for me, it was probably my great grandparents. So it's, you know, we've all heard these stories as as black folks growing up, we've all been a part of this interconnected type of conversation. Um, And I think that we're just tired. We're tired of seeing people have to suffer this way. We're tired of white Americans. And, and, you know, I don't even say white Americans. I'll say, quote, unquote, patriotic Americans saying that racism doesn't exist, that police brutality isn't an issue, that excuse police brutality with saying, oh, well, what about black on black crime? I think we're just fed up with it. Um, And like, while, you know, personally, I'm not about to go punch nobody in the face unless they punch me first, in which case I might. Um, And I don't, you know, I've never participated in any type of rioting. um, And I don't even like the term rioting. I like the term uprising because rioting has a negative connotation. But nonetheless, I've never participated in that. But I don't condemn anybody who does. I don't judge the people that do that. Um, like MLK also said that white people and white progressives like to, to forget about is that riots to the language of the unheard. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I feel about it. Like we can't condemn our ancestors, but I do also understand the inclination to not want to be peaceful anymore. Right. Totally. Yes. Yeah. Cause you just, what it was, I, I don't know the exact quote, but, um, James Baldwin, I think they interviewed him. He was like, well, how much longer do we have to wait? (laughs) Right. You you waited through his parents, and then now you're waiting through this. I apologize, but I think people know you just basically, how how much longer do we have to wait for this equality and stuff? So, yeah. Andrew, anything? Yeah. I kind of agree with Harmony a lot. I've, I've never used that quote, the phrase um, about the ancestors one um, before. I've heard it, but I've never used it. I think it's because, like, Consciously, I knew that I didn't really want to say that, knowing that it may be disrespectful in the way. And like how many said, they did what they had to do in order to provide. Um, and I agree with Harmony also when she says, um, "Well, let me let me say." There's a quote of mine, or well, not of mine, but I like to say I have it on my laptop, and I just keep I read it every morning. It says, "To be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be enraged almost all the time." And that's <laughs> in that bald one. Yes, it is. Um, and to me, like, I just, not, I read it, I think I kind of, like, intuitively, like, in my brain, just think, okay, I know I'm a Negro. But just to think about it like that, and I know it's, when he says to be in a rage all the time, it's like, you got to be angry about all the time. Because um, we wait, like, there's so many issues that we that run through our brains all the time. Um, and I know that I like we are blessed and privileged to um, be living through these times instead of being living um, when our ancestors did live. And I, another thing, I don't like sometimes I don't even use the word ancestors when referring to slaves because like it wasn't that long ago. Um, but okay, um, I digress. No, you don't. I mean, I think it's, I think no, I think what you're saying is is, is right, and I, and rightfully so. Harmony called me, but I just thought it was interesting that you said. I, 
I look, you know, I'm a Negro. You know, that's just. Yeah, you, 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 you wake up in the morning, you're black, you go to bed, you're black. And and it's just, it's a lot. I mean, I keep using, uh, Mm -hmm. I was talking to somebody else. I mean, it's just, um, a friend of mine was talking today, was saying, just what we've just been talking about, how exhausting it is. And we're just, and we're not even talking about the fact that you get hired at a job and you got to do extra work. Mm-hmm. You just got to mm-hmm. do extra work. I mean, not, you got to do your performance evaluation and then you got to make sure you do extra because people looking at you all sideways because you're black. I agree. Can I add something to that too? Yeah, go ahead. Because I mean, that's, that, that, yeah, was, that's just extra. That's rage. I mean, that's just rage. Yeah. Exactly. I completely agree. Something, and it makes, it made me sad a little bit today because I'm looking for um, like part time positions as I'm working throughout my last year of college. And today I walked into a place I've already applied for. And there was this new general manager in there, and I asked. I was being very professional, although you couldn't see my mouth, my face because I had the mask on. But I've been trained to be very professional. Um, but anywho, as I walked in, I asked for the status of my application, and um, I wrote down my name and my number. And he says, "We'll give it to someone else to call me or whatever." Um, but as I was leaving, the thought in my brain was, "Are they going to have a conversation to say was he black or white?" And it, it brought me down so much because I was like, if they say that I'm black, would that cause me to not be able to get this position? Or like certain things, you know, there's certain things that just have to that run through my mind that I know that everyone doesn't have to deal mm-hmm. with. And Andrew, I think what's also super poignant about what you just said is that you have been taught to be super professional. So like even before you told us your story, you know what I mean? It was almost like you had to justify to the people listening or even maybe to us that like, Hey, I was really professional when I approached these people. And that makes me sad because it goes back to what BJ was saying, always having to go above and beyond to, to barely even be considered competent. I mean, it's, it's, it's a hot mess. (laughs) It's a hot mess. It is, and, and, and I don't think white people understand that. I mean, not that, you know, and not that that's, that they should. I mean, they should in some way, especially those that go, uh, some friend of, person that I know, white person on my Facebook, you know, talk about, you know, she's in the state. I didn't reply to her. I'm still trying to figure out how I'm going to address it when I see her or whatever. She said, Block her. I don't, I, no, <laughs> no. But she's like, you know, I, I'm no white, I'm not, I don't have white privilege because I work for everything I got. And I'm thinking, no, 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 no. It's not. Ma'am. It's not, yeah, it's not Ma'am. Just that. We are too far into 2020 for people <laughs> to still be saying this stupid stuff. We are too far. Now, if this oh. was early 2012, I might have given her a pass. This might have gotten a pass, but it is, we are in July of 2020. Block her, BJ. Block her. That's willful ignorance. But, it, but, but see, the thing, but I also try to be empathetic to the fight, to the fact that some white people's uh, circle isn't diverse, so they're not even privy to these conversations. They're not even privy to these conversations. So how how are they going to know what Andrew just talked about? How how that impacts it? If if you don't have if you don't have any if you can't sit around at your table or your friends and you don't never have black folks at the table, then you don't really understand the struggle. Mm-hmm. I mean, because you can't, and then you listen to it, but you don't know it's not up close and personal to you. So I try to give people a pass. And I'm like, can you diversify, first of all, can you diversify your circle? Because that, right. that might help just a little bit. And I um, hear you, BJ. And yeah. I, I honor that. Like, I really honor the fact that you are patient enough 
and humble enough to have that conversation because I used to try, but like at this point for my mental health, right. if, if yeah. you don't know, then I'm not going to be the one to teach you today because <laughs> uh, I don't have the time and I don't have the patience. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I don't yeah, want to be yeah. perceived as somebody that's yeah. like, you know, coming for people's throats, but also at the same time, like you have access to Google and black people are always having to be understanding and sympathetic and trying to see these people's points of views, but then they can't even read a Google article and remove themselves from it. You know what I mean? So it's like, I understand that. And I, I honor that so much um, and respect that so much because I just, I'm so beyond that, but I'm, I'm glad that people like you, BJ do have this, considerable amount of patience um, to have these conversations because, you know, I, I think that maybe eventually being able to have these conversations in a way um, can maybe help them see it from a different perspective, but I don't know. Yeah, I know. Andrew, you got anything? Just, just thinking about uh, the things that we were talking about, something that, like, in conversation as I'm talking to my other African American and black friends, like we we discussed like we shouldn't have to be the spoke like the the <laughs> person to give you the ticket to the black culture. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> did you hear what he said, Harvey? Mm-hmm. Okay. Like I should, like she said, if you can please, like if you really, I feel like people, if they really care enough, they would open a book or do some research on their own to kind of help them, and then after doing so, maybe have a discussion, an open discussion about it. But I'm not. I don't have the golden ticket to be trying to tell people this every day. Like this, it's not yes. our duty, if that makes any sense. It's- Absolutely. I was talking to um, one of, one of the co-chairs for the non nonprofit that I'm a fellow at. And he said that we can only tell white people how we experience racism. We can't tell you how the system works because you made it up. And I thought that that was so poignant. Like, This is a system that you benefit from. White people do have the privilege of not having to think about being white in the morning. I think maybe because there's so much like, I guess, just like uproar against like white supremacy. I think for the first time in a long time, white people are really starting to say, oh, my God, like I am white and I am trying to navigate this space. Mm -hmm. And I also understand, you know, kind of the difficulty it takes to read a book that talks about you know, the injustices that white people have inflicted on black and brown people across the world. That's difficult. I understand that that's a hard pill to swallow. I remember being in a social work class and I was maybe a junior in college and we had some people from, I think it was like an LGBTQ um, group on campus that came and we were talking about trans rights. And I had said something that was transphobic, but not on purpose. You know what I mean? I didn't understand that what I was saying was transphobic. Um, the thing was, we were talking about pronouns, like they and them. And I was like, but it doesn't make sense in a sentence. And then, you know, they corrected me and they were very frank and they weren't necessarily super nice about it. But it wasn't about me in that moment. And I had to remove myself from the moment. And understand that what I said, you know, albeit, you know, it wasn't intended that way. I was just genuinely asking a question, how that could be perceived that way and how that could make somebody that has to live as a trans or gender non-conforming person has to deal with every single day. So like, I get the difficulty it must take to take a look at your privilege and to take a look at all of the things that you've worked for 
and know that black people have to work harder than you. You know what I mean? When you really have worked tooth and nail to get to a place, I can understand why you might feel like, hey, I don't, I don't have white privilege. So I get it. But like, black lives are more important than white feelings and equitable systems are more important than white feelings. And at the end of the day, if we have more equitable systems, it's better for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, yes, that's probably good for us to maybe end on equitable for everybody. Yeah. I think, and what I want to say based on what you were just, your friend was saying about the system, because this is the other thing that the quote that people are saying, not quote necessarily, but getting away from saying the system is broken. It was built that way. Mm. The not broken. It, it was, it, it's, it's working the way it was built meant to work. So it's not, the system isn't broken. It's, it's just, it's working it's fine. It's functioning properly, right? <laughs> it's functioning properly. It's because doing its job. It's doing what it was built to do. Exactly. So yeah, I, I think and this has been a good conversation. It's, it's like I said earlier when we started, it, this, these two this weekend with these two deaths and kind of thinking about how we move through this moment and, and remembering you know, what they put forth for us to to, to simply vote. And, and I think most of the people that are remembering, especially John Lewis, is that the most nonviolent thing that we can do is vote. And, and if nothing else, just to honor Mr. Lewis and Mr. Vivian is just, just to vote, you know, and, just, just, and do what we do. Which each, each of us have our own thing that we can do in this moment. So... I want to just kind of ask you guys, you got any last parting words before we shut this one out? Um, Another thing I think of, just kind of echoing what you said um, about voting. I'm very young. I've only had a chance to vote once, and it hasn't been in a presidential election. But um, I stood in line for maybe two hours at UNCG um, waiting to vote. I skipped the class. I skipped the class because they had only think one spot that day where we had to go to to actually go, and the line was out the door. Um, and my friends, like, I'm tired. Like, I'm ready, to go. I'm ready to go. And I was like, in my head, I was like, I'm not moving from this spot because <laughs> I know what it took for me to stand here and to be able to do this. So please vote because a lot of people fought for your right to. Um, I think mine is just remember that it's a marathon, not a sprint. Do what you need to do to honor yourself and take care of yourself. Um, and don't let the system of capitalism and white supremacy guilt you for taking a break and doing what you need to do to make it through another day. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks. I think, uh, you know, for those of you who had not heard Maya Angelou and, you know, just, we all are wearing some form of a mask as we move through the space um, to be able to survive. Appreciate you guys listening to us. And as always, stay well and peace.